If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26. If you do not have a Bible, hopefully there should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, around you. 1 Samuel chapter 26. So we're continuing in our study through the book of Samuel. And if you have your Bibles open, um, and you're kind of looking around, in chapter 24, you could say that David experienced his, his first wilderness temptation, so to speak, where he had King Saul, who was actually pursuing him, right in his midst in the cave in, of En Gedi, where he could have taken matters into his own hands. He had his... his his guys with him, encouraging him to do so. The Lord has given you Saul this day, and yet David is restrained from doing that, from, from taking matters into his own hands. And then in, in chapter 25, we are introduced to a, a wicked man named Nabal, who um, David thought, after caring for his shepherds for a period of time, would, would be willing to help him and his 600 men who are uh, hiding out with him, um, trying to steer clear of King Saul's attempts to kill. And Nabal ends up being a very wicked man and, and does not give David what he needs. And so David, in this sense, tempted once again to take matters into his own hands, is going to do so with his, his men. And um, Nabal's wife, Abigail, sent by God is the, the hand, the, the means in which God uses to, to help David see the error of his way and restrain him from taking matters into his own hands. And now we see in chapter 26, you could say the third wilderness temptation. So please follow along as what may sound very similar to chapter 24, but is, is actually different in, in ways as well. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. With Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp, of the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David, David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. 
Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out, of, out this day that I should have no share in the heritage, the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who, who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so, be, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Hear the word of the Lord. It's interesting that we have seen David being tested 
in the wilderness to see if his faith in God is truly genuine and if he will trust the Lord in, in every area of his life. He has been presented many opportunities to be tested. And here with the Ziphites, that should ring a bell because this is the same people in chapter 24. They really must have a thing for David because the Ziphites bring once again to Saul information on where David is located. Now, that, that's, that being the second time they've done this, what's interesting is what we see here is also a test for, for King Saul. We, we get to see whether or not Saul and his confession that he made in chapter 24 outside of the cave was, would, would actually uh, prove to be true, a, a real confession. I, I want you to hear in chapter 24 what Saul said after David could have killed him in the cave. If you remember, he just cut a piece of his robe off and, and did not, and then came out after King Saul, after he exited the, the cave, and, and let him know very clearly, I could have done this, but I did not. This is what this is how Saul had responded to that. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with, well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put, put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore to Saul in chapter 24, then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And verse 2 of our chapter, chapter 26, really lets us know how Saul ultimately re responds. Was his rep re repentance sincere? Well, in verse 2, we see Saul arose after getting word from the people of Ziph. He arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness once again. If you were with us in chapter 24, the way Saul responds, the words that he, that he spoke to David, they seemed sincere. They were truly sorrowful. And if you recall, we laid out a biblical difference that the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. One leads to death, the other, godly sorrow, leads to life. It is a true repentance. They both look very similar. Maybe similar words are spoken, tears are shed, but the heart really then exposes in the, the after moments, the time afterwards, whether or not this actually was a worldly sorrow or a godly sorrow. And we see in Saul's life, he picks up the same uh, excitement, calls 3,000 valiant troops, and goes and pursues David once again. Then in verses 3 through 6, David gets the lay of the land. He sends out spies. He 
locates where Saul is and finds out what he's up to once again. Once that happens in these verses, we see that David then in verse 6 calls on the men who are with him for someone to go. And just by way of, of note, we are introduced to Ahimelech the Hittite, not to be confused with the other Ahimelech, the priest of Nob that was slaughtered by, if you recall, Saul's um, commission to go and, and take down the, the priests of Nobs to destroy them. We're not, we're not given any detail about this Ahimelech, but him, this Ahimelech, and Joab's brother Abishai were the two that, that heard this, this call from David, and Abishai said, I will go down with you. This is our first introduction to Abishai, and we will see him being one of, um, one of David's nephews, actually. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, we're told that these three sons, Abishai, Asahel, and Joab, are sons of uh, Zeruah, and that was one of David's sisters. And we see in the way that Abishai is is aggressive in wanting to take out Saul in just a few verses. Uh, these three brothers, as David's story unfolds even into 2 Samuel, we see these three bro- brothers really have that type of loyalty and intensity and whose desire for blood would drive even David, King David later on, to despair. But Abishai is the one that would go with him. And then in verses 7 through 8, we see how this episode begins to unfold. Saul with his men are encamped. The spear is sunk in the ground by Saul's head. He is asleep. His soldiers are surrounding him, also asleep. And David and Abishai make their way towards him. Now, you heard me read, Abishai just wanted one strike. That's all it would take to put this spear into Saul and make an end of him. He would not need to strike him twice. And just for a moment, thinking about this, this is very similar to what David experienced in the cave of Engedi, where he had Saul in his midst. Saul did not know, and David did know, and David's men's, men encouraged him to, to take matters into his own hands. But just thinking about the words that Abishai offers to David, that he would pin Saul to the earth, really is if you think about it, the response that most of us, if not all of us in the flesh, after seeing all of this unfold, would rightly say and want to do. You're following David. You know how he has been pursued and mistreated. You know that he is the the one who will be the king of Israel. Samuel's anointing of David has has, the word has spread, and these followers are starting to see this is the man who will lead us. And so one, one commentator, Alexander McLaren, wrote this many years ago, commenting on Abishai. Abishai represents the natural impulse of us all to strike at our enemies when we can, to, make, to meet hate with hate, and to do to another the evil that he would do to us. Yet to do this would be sin, and David knows this very well. By God's grace, he experienced what he experienced with Nabal to prepare him 
for this second encounter with King Saul. So what transpired in chapter 25? Abigail, the mouthpiece of God, lets him know, if you take matters into your own hands and go and strike down Nabal, as wicked as he is, my husband, you will, you will bring on blood guilt upon yourself. This is not good. This is not right. Please heed my words. All of that transpired right before this chapter. David remembers and he speaks these truths to Abishai. And I, I want us to hear this. Convictions which do not lead to correction only increase condemnation. So there is this contrast between David's actions and Saul's actions. David's responses and Saul's responses. We see in both David and Saul's life conviction of truth, conviction of reality. And what really matters is how they respond. So convictions which do not lead to correction and action, actually we see in Saul's life, lead to increased condemnation. But with David, he hears and by God's grace applies wisdom that he just learned to this present situation. Now, rewind back to ch chapter 24. He was dealing with King Saul there. He refrained from striking down the Lord's anointed, but just m a little while longer in chapter 25, he's presented with a new circumstance, not with the king, but with this wicked man, Nabal, and quickly forgets his experience with the king and thinks, well, in this particular case, I will take matters into my own hands. He gets his men and they are on pursuit to strike down Nabal and his, and his household. By God's grace, David is learning and growing and applying. Many would say that wisdom is not just knowledge, but it's actually knowledge, God's knowledge applied. And we're seeing that in David's life. He is his ears are open, his heart is open to be taught. And we see that play out in this exchange with Abishai. The Lord forbid, verse 11, that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take the spear that is, it, that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. He says that after proclaiming what he learned in chapter 25. Now, if you remember the end of Nabal, the end of Nabal's life, the Lord struck him down. The Lord did it. And so David, hearing and experiencing that, is able to say in verse 10, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Here's what David is proclaiming. I trust God. I have seen him, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, and I will rely on his plan to unfold with King Saul and the oppression that I'm experiencing from him. Saul never learned to wait on the Lord. We saw this very clearly in chapter 13 and as his kingship progresses, but David was growing in grace. And even in this moment, this heated moment, where he may have been tempted once again to take matters into his own hands as King Saul is laying there fast asleep. 
He remembers and trusts. He waits on God. In the cave of Engedi, David spares Saul with the effect that Saul seemed to renounce his hostility towards David. David has now learned that Saul was not going to change. He's pursuing him once again. And so this is what makes this situation in chapter 26 appear to be similar but different. How would David respond this time? You have to imagine that Abishai's proposal seemed more reasonable than maybe the first episode in the cave after Saul gave his confession that he would not pursue David, and yet here he is again, and he's before him fast asleep. David learned to trust. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, speaks about David growing in God's grace. David's growth in grace involved his awareness of God's sovereignty in the affairs of all men, combined with God's goodness. So God's sovereign over all things, and God is good. He is just. He is wise, and we can trust him. Knowing that he serves an omnipotent, sovereign, faithful God who has promised to take care of him and deliver him, David prefers to wait for God's solution in God's timing. What I also want you to hear, though, very, very important here, waiting for God's solution to this particular problem doesn't mean that David is inactive or just aloof. So there is a waiting upon God where it is being exercised in David's life and there is still activity happening, as we will see as this episode unfolds before us. So once they got the spear and the, the, the jug of water, they separate themselves with some space. And we see that this, this action by David and Abishai is going to be used not only in David's life and Abishai's life, but Saul's life and all those who are going to listen to this exchange that is about to happen. You, you've got to remember the context. You have the king of Israel pursuing an innocent man who is going to be the king of Israel. And so this setting, there is some distance between them, and David begins by yelling out to the commander of Saul's army, Abner, awaking him from his from his stupor, from his sleep. And so through, in verses 13 through 16, we have this question being posed. Who is the better right-hand man of the king? Is it you, Abner, or is it me, David? And so with this shouting match, so to speak, David begins by calling out to Abner, Will you not answer, Abner? And Abner responds, and we see this engagement happen. And what I want us to note here, not going through every verse exactly, but just seeing the overview of this particular uh, part of the story, David really crying out to Abner saying, who really is the one who has been more faithful to the Lord's anointed in this particular situation? Abner, you have not protected the king the way that I have. I actually was right in his midst and, 
and, and released or gave, I was merciful to him. I spared him when I could have taken his life. You, who are part of this stirring up of King Saul against me and pursuing me, you really are the one who is unfit to live. And so the question being posed, who now is worthy of death? Is it you or is it me? You have neglected your responsibilities, and I want everyone to hear this and to know this. Now, there was one other part of this passage that I, 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 I want us to make sure we, we also hear, because I really kind of feel like it's, it's kind of that, that bedrock piece of reality. As we see David and Abishai take the spear and take the jug of water, awaken the troops, he's now talking to Abner, King Saul now is aware that there's someone exchanging with him, they, they, they come out of their sleep, and we're told very clearly the reason why David and Abishai were able to get in and get out. They were probably amazing soldiers. We don't want to downplay that at all. But this is where you move from a man-centered focus to a God-centered focus in all of Scripture. Yes, David and Abner were probably sneaky, light on their feet, able to get in and out. But that's not the reason why Saul and his men did not wake up. Please do not miss this. It was the Lord who had placed them in a deep sleep so that his will would be accomplished that very day. It was the Lord's doing that they were not able to hear or see anything that happened until David starts yelling at Abner. That is the, the, the undergirding truth that allows all this story to unfold and for us to see who ultimately gets the glory in all of it. It is God and God alone. And David, being used by God to see or to work out his unfolding plan. So when Saul finally hears that it's David, recognizing his voice in, in verse 17, he cries out, is this your voice, my son David? And I do want you to hear these verses again because this exchange before, b between David and Saul is, is an important one. And I want you to note this is actually the last time that they talk with one another. And so this is building up to um, a climax in the words that David speaks to Saul. And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, This is David speaking to Saul. Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord... Who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. I want us to see the way David is handling this adversity and the way Saul has been handling perceived opposition. Now, 
through these chapters unfolding, Saul is relentless in grasping after what God had already given him. The grasping is the emphasis here. While, um, while David, the one who, who is the, the anointed one to come, he, he's, he's not grasping and yet he's receiving. So you've got Saul grasping at what had already been given to him by God and as he grasps, the more he loses. And then David, the less he grasps after things and trusts God, the more he receives. And what I've also mentioned before and what I want us to see is that David, while not willing to harm the Lord's, the Lord's anointed, was definitely willing to argue with him, to exchange with him, to plead his case, to let the, the king know and all who, ha, who are within earshot the injustice and the wrong. And so, in a sense, David is inviting Israel to watch him not strike the king with violence, but rather strike the king's heart with his words spoken. We hear in Proverbs chapter 28, this very helpful verse for those who who are following after the Lord. The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as lions. The righteous are as bold as a lion. We see as David is trusting the Lord, waiting on his timing, doing the, having this exchange with the, with the king who is, who is after him, who is wanting him dead, he is able to proclaim these truths in boldness that only can come from God. So here in these verses, David lays out two possible causes for this type of treatment from Saul. In verse 19, he says, If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. So David's even posturing himself in this way. It is possible that God has ordained Saul hounding after David as a judgment on David. This could be a possibility. David realizes he is a, a sinner in need of forgiveness. And we see that playing out in all of his life. And just, just to note, the end of chapter 25, we hear this interesting little description about Abigail becoming David's wife, but then David also taking another lady as his wife. And I don't want to press too far into this, but we, we, we understand polygamy not being the way that God has ordained marriage between one man and one woman. And one commentator noted, and it made me really kind of just sit there and think for a while, we, we don't know if this is even maybe what David was, was contemplating, but the reality is as David lays himself bare before Saul, there might be a reason why Saul is after him, and it might be because of sin in his life. But what David's trying to emphasize here is, if that is the case, Saul, allow me to make sacrifice and ask God for forgiveness, but you have driven me away and not even given me that opportunity. That might be one of the scenarios that might be playing out here, but probably more obvious is what comes after that. But if it is men who is your court causing you to pursue after me, convincing you that I'm a guilty man, 
may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, in order to to kind of wrap our minds around what's being said here, we need to remember that the land, the land was the inheritance that the Lord promised his people, the land of Canaan. And so when someone's driven outside of the land who is an Israelite, there is this, this feeling or this perception that they are being driven out to go and serve other gods in pagan lands. Now, what does David mean by this? Did David think that the Lord was confined to a physical place, the area of Israel, that you could only worship him on that particular ground? Did he think that if he went to another land, he would somehow be coerced into worshiping false gods? I don't think that's what he's driving at here. I don't think that's what he believes. We see this example in Psalm 139, for example, verses 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So I don't think David believes that just because he's outside of the land being driven outside, that he somehow can't be in communion and fellowship with God. But here I think is the key. When one is cut off from the Lord's inheritance, the people of Israel in the land that was promised to them, this meant that they were cut off from the the face of the Lord in this way. Please hear me. When one has left Israel, the land, during this time, there was no possibility for public worship. This was huge to David, to worship in the sanctuary, to gather as the people of God and worship him. We see that in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David has been driven away from the tabernacle where he cannot experience sacrifices for his sins and where God has promised to meet his people. So to be cut off from public worship is what grieves David most and what he is crying out to Saul, communicating, this is what you have done to me. In the new covenant, Christians, we who are believers in Christ, have surpassed David in these means of grace that God has given us. But I would submit to you that few of us approach it the way that David is doing here. He had an an appetite, a desire to be in the presence of God and wanting Saul to know that what injustice is happening to him, this this is one way in which it's manifesting itself. You are driving me away from sacrifice. You are driving me away into foreign lands where I can't gather with the people of God and worship. What David spoke hit, landed with Saul. In verse 21, Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, 
For I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. This response is more than King Saul had acknowledged on the former occasion in chapter 24. And yet, the way that David responds really does shed light that even in the midst of hearing these words, it is greatly to be feared that there really was still no true sense of true, genuine repentance in Saul's life. And thinking about the one who betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ, it's very similar in hearing how Judas responds in what sounds like a very remorseful response in Matthew chapter 27. Judas responds, I have sinned and that I, I have betrayed the innocent blood. And yet we all know that there was not a transformation of heart in Judas's life, a turning to God in repentance. Likewise, in Saul, he realizes that he has messed up royally and there are consequences for his actions. But just like Judas... There is betrayal and acknowledgement of that, but not a changing of a heart. He owned King Saul that he had sinned, had made a great mistake, and even told David to return to him. And what we see in David's response is, here is your spear. Have one of your guys come and get it. Clearly acknowledging I hope that the Lord uses this in your life, but I'm not inviting you back in or trusting you to actually go with you based off of how you've respond, responded previously to this type of, this type of mercy that I have I've granted you. For a moment, I want us to just think about this symbol of a spear. Saul has had this spear by his side throughout uh, the previous chapters in his kingship. And here's a question. Why in chapter 24, when David cut off a piece of Saul's robe, did it lead David to have, to have a, a guilty conscience, to have his conscience weighed down by that particular action, but yet in this chapter, he takes the king's spear and does not have that type of um, response, a troubled conscience. It, it did not. It it, it wasn't. Pre, it wasn't prevalent in chapter twenty six, but yet it was. It was there in chapter twenty four, and I think this is important for us to think about. The robe represented the Lord's position, the 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 place that the Lord has has ordained to to rule and to govern. This is the Lord's doing. And so whether or not Saul is fulfilling that position appropriately did not matter. By David cutting the robe, he was, he was actually saying something against the office of king. But with the spear, the way in which this spear had been used by Saul to almost tie him to a wall and Saul's son Jonathan to a wall, but missed both, the way this spear has been used so unjustly represents what Saul has done in the office is not right. Tyrannical. It is not okay, and it's being called out. 
I think that's really important, seeing the office in itself being something that should be respected, but the way in which it's being carried out does not mean that we just go along with everything because they hold the office. There is no uh, guilty, troubled conscience in him taking this spear, which represented the way in which Saul had so horribly led the people of Israel and not fulfilling his office, and actually being like what Solomon had promised, when you seek a a king like the nations, that king's going to act like the nations. He's going to be a king that takes, that takes, that takes. And we've watched that unfold in the way that Saul has led the people of Israel. Again, David can only conclude by placing the matter in God's hands. He reminds Saul that what you reap, you will sow. He says, the Lord rewards, rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, think of Saul's actions, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. Think of how David responds to someone who does not deserve it. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. David's reward for his good faith and obedience to God's word, please mark this, was not relief from from a malicious pursuer, King Saul. We watched In chapter 24, it not really changed the way that Saul was going after David. There's no guarantee that this is going to be any different. David didn't know that this was going to be their last exchange, but he's trusting that God will take care of him regardless of how Saul responds to this particular situation. He's trusting God. He's waiting on God's timing and submitting himself in obedience to what God has said. What we see unfold in David's life and his kingship is that he really exhibits this in in kind of a mixed record of successes and grave failures. Although in the midst of his ruling and reigning as as the one who's seeking to follow after God's own heart, heart, Israel does experience a time of, uh, of, of being prosperous under his righteous rule. But where David even falls short, it's another sign that points to the righteous one to come. Here again what David says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. David typifies the greater and truly righteous king who actually has secured for people who are not righteous a righteousness that we get to experience and be clothed in. This is that opportunity when we're in the Old Testament and see how 
David is but a shadow of the substance to come, the reality of this, this truth that David speaks coming to its ultimate consummation in the Lord Jesus. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. As we sit in this room and you analyze your own life, maybe you're resonating with some of the ways in which Saul has handled these opportunities. Maybe you're resonating with how David experiences temptation from his men like Abishai wanting to just go and take matters into your own hands. Whatever the case may be, this is what we have to acknowledge. We are neither righteous nor faithful. There may be glimmers of times where we obey and do what we ought to do. But if our hearts were truly laid bare before God and one another this morning, we would all recognize that we have failed miserably. And this is what makes the righteous king such glorious news. He is the one who was perfectly righteous and perfectly faithful for a people who are not, so that we who are not righteous through faith in him may experience a righteousness not our own. This is the good news because David's on to something. The Lord rewards, the Lord blesses every man and woman who are righteous and faithful. When you stand before God, and we all will stand before God, you must give account for your life. That is terrifying outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that what you deserve is condemnation? Because of your rebellion against a holy and righteous God who calls all to obey his law. But, but God, the greatest two words in the Bible, has made a way for those who were far off, dead in their trespasses and sins, to experience the washing away of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, and the gift of eternal life. What we witnessed in the baptism of Maggie and Millie is the spiritual reality of what happens when you believe upon Christ and repent of your sins. You are washed clean. You stand before God now clothed in the righteousness of his son. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is good news that the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness if you are pointing your gaze to Christ Jesus and his perfect work. So here are the last words. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, David saying to Saul, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. It is no longer this kind of exchange where I have been nice to you, been gracious to you, please be gracious to me. It is a reckless, abandoned trust in God. Saul, I have given you mercy. Regardless of how you respond to me, God will bring me through every affliction. 
God is the one that is faithful. God is the one that I'm trusting, regardless of the outcome of this exchange that we have had this very day. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Listen again. Convictions which do not lead to correction only increase condemnation. I want to close with a little portion from R.C. Sproul. The way that if you, if you read articles on Ligonier Ministry, their website, at the end of most articles, it's Coram Deo, living in the presence of God. And this is what he wrote in regards to 1 Samuel 26 at the very end. We do not have the same role in the history of redemption that David did. Recognizing that David was the Lord's anointed to be king, we, we don't have the same role as David in the history of, of redemption. However, we know that God in his providence is working for our good just as he worked for David's. We may not, we may not always understand how he is doing this, but surely he is working all things together for our good and his glory. Romans 8, 28. Whatever you face today, know that if you are in Christ, God is working for your good. Some of us read chapter 26 and what has transpired previously for David and, real, and just ask questions like, why would God take him through all of this? And then we need to take those thoughts and anchor them in God's word and know that God is working all things together for good for those who love him and who, who are called according to his purposes. All things. He is working on us. He is taking us from where we are to where we need to be. It may seem very uncomfortable and unnecessary to us, but knowing that he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion upon the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have confidence in knowing that whatever you're experiencing, whatever it is, he is at work for your good. Let us pray. Father, we are so very thankful for your special revelation to us, your word. We thank you that you speak to us in the full council, Old and New Testament, all 66 books inspired by you, your very word to your people. May you, by the power of the Spirit this morning, apply these truths to our lives. Father, we pray that if there are those in this room who think that they can stand before you in their own righteousness and their own faithfulness, May you give them eyes to see the kingdom of God this morning and realize how holy and righteous you are and how wicked we are because of our sin and our great chasm between you and the need for one who has died in our place, our substitute. May they have eyes to see the glory of your son and the need for a savior. And those of us who are in Christ, may we understand our reward and our blessedness when we look not to our own righteousness, but to Christ and rejoice in the hope that we have in our King.
And we pray all this in his name. Amen.